This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The right to drive your car and the privilege of parking it where you want is jealously guarded by many who have parts of the media backing them up when inconvenient compromises are on the agenda. Now one newspaper editor has grasped the nettle by telling her readers on the front page it's time to change and now. Also, RNZ's Taranaki reporter Robin Martin speaks to a scion of journalism from that region who for years picked the pictures that went in the country's biggest selling paper. Now seriously ill, Rob Tucker's raising much-needed money for a local hospice by offering a remarkable array of donated photos, the likes of which will never be seen or sold again. But first, he came from overseas to fill the shoes of one of the biggest names in New Zealand broadcast news, but not for long. Kamal Santamaria quit TVNZ in scandalous circumstances after just a month this week, making awkward headlines in the news all week, which echoed another scandal from the past. Just before we kick into things today, we want to acknowledge the changes your show has undergone this year. So today, we want you to know how grateful we are for each of you who choose to make us part of your lives, our loyal viewing whanau. That was Jenny Mae Clarkson, the co-host of TVNZ's Breakfast Show, kicking off the programme last Monday, rather awkwardly and confusingly for anyone who didn't know about what she called the changes at their show. Now, for those who did know, that was a reference to the sudden and startling resignation of their co-host, Kamal Santamaria, last weekend. Initially, he quit because of what TVNZ called a family emergency, though sympathy and concern evaporated when allegations of unspecified inappropriate conduct were reported first by staff and then by everybody else. Kamal Santamaria had replaced John Campbell on the show just one month earlier after a long stint at Al Jazeera. He was hired for the breakfast job by TVNZ's head of news, Paul Urisic, himself a former editor at the Qatar-based news channel, where he was, for a time, Kamal Santamaria's colleague. That same Monday morning, Today FM's Tova O'Brien spoke to a woman who also worked for Al Jazeera in Doha and who told her that Santamaria's inappropriate behaviour was no secret there. Allegations were made over a series of years about Kamal. It was reported to HR and senior management on numerous occasions. As far as I understand, and having spoken to some former colleagues today, only one person ever brought up this issue with Kamal, despite numerous complaints being made. There are a lot of women who were subject to these complaints, who were subject to this harassment, who are thinking about whether or not they're going to talk at the moment. Stuff also quoted an unnamed Al Jazeera source as saying that Santa Maria was given a formal warning there, and all that put the spotlight on TVNZ's news chief and the higher-ups there. But back on the breakfast show last Monday, Santa Maria's remaining colleagues mentioned none of that. Thank you for watching, uh, for learning and for laughing with Alfano, the entire breakfast team. I just want to say also how proud I am to work with you incredible humans. You too, Jane May. So Thank you. And while they seemed more concerned that viewers of their show would probably be stressed by the events that they couldn't bring themselves to describe properly, they weren't the only ones at TVNZ dodging the issue, as we'll hear. Though the same can't be said of TVNZ's news staff, who hit the story head-on for One News on Saturday last weekend, highlighting their own boss's refusal to comment. With his family, it is worth noting that what was earlier called a family emergency is now being called that personal matter. And Kim, what else are TVNZ bosses saying? 
We have asked for more information both from Television New Zealand's Head of News and Current Affairs and also its Corporate Affairs Department, both declining to add anything further at this stage other than TVNZ saying that Kamal Santa Maria is focusing on his family. Watching on, newsroom co-editor Tim Murphy described that as virtuous but ultimately fruitless reporting, while others saw it as an act of internal revolt against the management's mishandling of the matter and possibly also against the circumstances of Kamal Santamaria's recruitment for the high-profile role in the first place. And the next night, One News led the bulletin with reporter Kim Baker-Wilson again pressing his own bosses for further comment about what they were now calling a personal matter. We were told that TVNZ won't be commenting further, apart from saying we do not comment publicly on the existence or substance of any individual's employment matters. Now, saying you can't comment because of ongoing employment matters is a standard HR playbook response that many media encounter these days when trying to report on a controversial or surprising high-profile exit. And, to their great credit, TVNZ's Melissa Stokes and Kim Baker-Wilson addressed the internal awkwardness of the story like this last Sunday. Today, the newsroom has used a lawyer to be guided on our reporting of this. That is a lawyer outside of Television New Zealand, where normally we would use our own in-house lawyers. Yesterday, when I texted the head of news and current affairs asking if there was any comment from him, the reply was that he was treating that request as he would for any other outside news question and referring it to the communications team. So we are operating at arm's length here. TVNZ's long-serving general counsel Brett McAnulty is usually an ally and a champion of TVNZ's reporters' efforts to get at the truth and to get around any legal obstacles. But the most awkward position in all this is that of TVNZ's news chief Paul Urisich, at arm's length from his own team pressing for answers and joining his managers in refusing to comment before going on leave on Thursday. Now, clearly, this is a big deal at TVNZ News and obviously for those affected by the alleged misconduct of Kamal Santa Maria. And if the Me Too movement has taught industries anything in recent times, it's that the harassment that goes unexposed and unconfronted ends up either excused or, worse, embedded. But while this was big media news, was it really bulletin leading stuff for the rest of us? Well, RNZ's Morning Report put that question this week to the man who hired Kamal Santa Maria as an 18 year old former TV3 News boss Mark Jennings. There's a high level of trust um, in the individuals doing these jobs. You know, you also want to know that the state broadcaster uh, is processes when it comes to hiring people um, are carried out correctly. And the state ownership of TVNZ did indeed add a political dimension that drew in the shareholding ministers. Broadcasting Minister Chris Farfoy sought an assurance from TVNZ's board about the appointment of Kamal Santa Maria. And when TVNZ Breakfast did get to grips with the story properly on Tuesday, presenter Jenny May Clarkson asked TVNZ's other shareholding minister, the Minister of Finance Grant Robertson, this. If it's found that the recruitment process wasn't right, what follow-up action do you expect the minister to take or what's within his power to be able to follow up? Look, and that's exactly the example of the independence, because it wouldn't be a matter for uh, for the minister. It would be a matter for the board and the management of TVNZ. Another arm's length message there, after which the unsurprising response from TVNZ was reported on One News like this. TVNZ is launching an independent review of its recruitment policies after the sudden resignation of its new breakfast host, Kamal Santamaria. Nicole Bremner is across developments and joins us now live. Kia ora, Nicole. What else is TVNZ saying?
But TVNZ still wasn't saying much else either to poor old Nicole Bremner of One News, reporting live there from out on the street outside her own newsroom. Yes, kia ora, Simon. Well, TVNZ's Chief Executive Simon Power declined our interview request, but this afternoon released a statement outlining the independent review. Now, in that email, Chief Executive Simon Power told TVNZ staff that if they needed to speak to him, he was available any time, though clearly not on the record, as Nicole Bremner and Kim Baker-Wilson had already discovered. Simon Power did apologise to staff on Thursday, but has still had no comment to make in public. And in the absence of that, those emails to staff were almost instantly leaked to other media by TBNZ staff, prompting TBNZ manager Andrew Fernie to email all staff to tell them he was frankly quite disgusted over the leaks. And that email in turn was promptly leaked to the Herald, which they published under the remarkable headline, TBNZ boss tells staff don't leak, leaked emails reveal how they responded. Hayden Donnell took a look at that part of this self-generating story and others in this week's Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday on The Lately Show with Brian Crump. If you missed it, it's in our podcast feed or you'll find it on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website. Now all this had echoes of another mishandled misconduct crisis that prompted TBNZ to cut loose another star presenter back in 2008. That was sportscaster Tony Veach who was convicted for seriously assaulting his partner. Now clearly this was a much more serious matter, but Veach had assured TVNZ's insufficiently curious executives at that time it was just a minor fracas, though the two-inch thick police file released to media under the Official Information Act had plenty more that ought to worry any employer. And when all this became public back then, it was Lisa Owen, then a TVNZ reporter, who was the one trying to get her own bosses to talk. Well, we made repeated requests for an interview with the head of uh, news at TVNZ, Anthony Flannery. No response from that department. I also submitted a list of written questions to the publicity department. Wrote no response there either. Instead, we were issued with this rather bland statement from CEO Rick Ellis a short time ago. In it, he says a significant review process is underway into the circumstances surrounding um, Tony Veach, including the disclosures he's made this afternoon. It also says that um, he considers that violence is a major issue in New Zealand. Beyond that, we haven't had any answers to the questions that we really wanted answered. That is, who knew about this, how much did they know, and when did they find out? TVNZ's chief executive at that time was Rick Ellis, who also cited employment matters and left it an awfully long time before speaking about it in public. And when he did, it was John Campbell, then of TV3, who had plenty of questions. Why would you pay out $150,000? Why would you use the TVNZ lawyer? Why would you do any of this on the basis of a minor fracas? Well, and why didn't your people try harder to find out what the minor fracas was? Well, John, at the time, uh, it just wasn't um, on the minds of the managers that the minor fracas was the issue here. And so they didn't. And back then, senior politicians were not so wary of commenting. The then Minister of Broadcasting, Trevor Mallard, criticised TVNZ for leaving other media to shed light on the handling of the matter. Uh, I've been finding out about things uh, more from the Dominion Post and TV3 than from TVNZ. And the Prime Minister of the day wasn't exactly staying at arm's length when she was asked for comment either. If senior managers thought it was OK... Uh, to have things confessed to them, which clearly were at variance with what any organisation would want linked with them, then there's a moral crisis here. Harsh words there to worry the top brass in a high-profile, public-facing, state-owned enterprise, let alone a broadcaster in the public eye. 
Well, this week, the Herald's media writer Damien Venuto said that stories about misconduct by older men in the media were becoming, in his words, annoyingly familiar. And among the commentators pointing out that rival media company MediaWorks reviewed its entire corporate culture last year when confronting claims of harassment and bullying was former New Zealand Herald editor-in-chief Gavin Ellis. In the end, MediaWorks' cultural review was limited in scope, and so was the accountability, but in his weekly blog, Gavin Ellis said it may now be time for the media to adopt a common code of workplace practice. If they need an incentive, he said, they might just consider the effect that episodes like this one have had on already low levels of public trust in the media. Now, while this is a story about reputations and ethics, it's also about ratings and entertainment. And in amongst all the articles about the Santa Maria scandal was one that the Herald headlined, Who Will Replace Him on the Breakfast Show Couch? And among the suggested candidates was a former host of the show, Paul Henry. Entertainment editor Jenny Mortimer said that Henry has the right stuff to draw attention away from scandal and pull an audience. Why wouldn't TVNZ open its checkbooks for him, she asked. Well, probably because the last reputation-wrecking scandal at breakfast was sparked by Paul Henry's conduct on that show. Sheila Dickshit. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, and it's so appropriate because she's Indian. Accusations of racism for mocking an Indian government minister didn't deter Paul Henry from saying this on the air to Prime Minister John Key in 2010 about the Governor-General at that time, Sir Anand Sachinand. Because the, the current Governor-General, Sir Anand Sachinand, is term, is finishes in the middle of is next year. Is he even a New Zealander? Uh, yes, he's a New Zealander. Are you going to choose a New Zealander who looks and sounds like a New Zealander this time? Now, Paul Henry apologised for that that day, but TVNZ made it worse with a statement saying that viewers loved him because Paul Henry says the things we quietly think but are too scared to say out loud. Well, people had plenty to say out loud about that after that, and Paul Henry quit the show. The breakfast presenter offered his resignation this afternoon. It follows a week when two separate incidents resulted in his suspension from duty and caused an international outcry. Now, coincidentally, Paul Henry popped up this week talking about that on Today FM's current affairs podcast, The Core, in an episode that was all about the scourge of cancel culture. You know, I mean, technically I resigned, but it was a negotiated departure and there were no alternatives. It's paper thin, the line between uh, resigning and being sacked. Um, But it looks better for everybody if, if someone resigns. Paul Henry, of course, wasn't cancelled. He moved on to the rival network for a show in which he noticeably dialed down his obnoxiousness from then on. Though on Today FM's podcast on cancel culture, he said he deplored people to do that as cowards. Paul Henry told Today FM's podcast this week that the TVNZ CEO was deeply involved back in 2010 behind closed doors and getting him out the door quietly as possible. You know, they had to make a call. What do you do when you've got people baying for blood? Um, you choose the easy way out, which is what TVNZ did. And 12 years later, much now hinges on the review that TVNZ has ordered in the wake of the Kamal Santa Maria scandal and how TVNZ owns the outcome of that or doesn't. The drama has disrupted a decade's worth of relative stability at TVNZ under the former chief executive Kevin Kenrick at a time when it ought to be focusing on its transition to a new public media entity alongside RNZ. And while the new chief executive Simon Power has told TVNZ staff many lessons are being learned from this, at some point he's going to have to speak publicly about what those are.
Last weekend here on Media Watch, we heard how one news outlet turned away from a ready source of revenue for media, ads for big brand new cars which are selling faster than ever before, even though we're supposed to be bringing down this fast-rising source of carbon emissions. Subscriber outlet Business Desk drew a line in the gravel by giving gas guzzlers a swerve in its motoring section, and last year it became the only outlet we know of to have regular reviews and articles about environmentally friendly e-bikes, which also cut congestion in our towns and cities. And last Monday, Wellington Region Daily The Dominion Post kicked off a new campaign to cover how to reduce the transport emissions by using our cars less and less often. But on any given day in the Dom Post, you might find letters to the editor griping about any proposals that may restrict the freedom to drive and to park. So this week, Hayden Donnell talked to the editor who gets those letters at the Dominion Post. But first, he looks at why she decided to take a stand that could just alienate her own customers in the first place. This report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is a litany of broken climate promises. It is a file of shame, cataloguing the empty pledges that put us firmly on track towards an unlivable world. That's UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres sounding the alarm about the climate emergency. His statement accompanied the release of the latest IPCC report, which urges government to enact a host of policy interventions in response to that global threat. Those include making major reforms to the fastest-growing source of emissions, transport. That creates a challenge for governments used to coasting by on a car-centric status quo. But it also opens up potential lines of inquiry for the media. Potential climate action is often covered like this. Auckland Council is drawing up a radical plan to remove parking on many of the city's roads. Auckland Mayor Phil Goff has put the brakes on radical proposals and a new parking strategy to remove Auckland Council has responded to Labour and National's radical plan for greater intensification. Auckland Council is ratcheting up its opposition to Labour and National's radical plans for greater intensification. That's the Herald writing variously about plans to allow three-storey housing or remove parking on 3.5% of Auckland's roads over a decade. But what's arguably more radical is watching an unfurling global catastrophe and refusing to make significant changes as a result. This week, one major media outlet adjusted its editorial line to reflect that reality. On Monday, almost the entire front page of the Dominion Post was covered with an image of a woman on a bike and the following headline. We need to change to protect our planet. The only question is how. Anna Fifield, the Dominion Post's editor, is driving that editorial direction as part of a campaign called Mode Shift. One of the most surprising things uh, about this job that I have as the Wellington editor for stuff is just how polarising and political and controversial it is to suggest that some people might sometimes want to ride a bike. Uh, The kind of amount of mail and comments I get about coverage about bike lanes uh, and buses and things like this has been a real surprise and how vitriolic it often is. And so I've just been thinking about what can we as the media outlet in the capital city be doing to support this conversation and to facilitate this conversation and to add to it in some ways. So I thought that given that Let's Get Wellington Moving is um, nearing a decision and there's a lot, you know, we're in the lead up to the local government elections, I thought that maybe we could contribute to the public discussion on this by looking at all different modes of transport around the capital region and how we could do things better. 
you know, the window for action is change is closing very rapidly. If, uh, and in the capital region, transport accounts for 50% of the climate emissions. Um, and so that's some a place where we can really move the dial if we take action to reduce the carbon we're emitting through transport and how we get around. But also the personal part of it is probably the fact that I love to bike around. I biked in Washington, D.C. I biked everywhere in Tokyo, including up the steep hill to my house. I biked all around Beijing when I was there. And so um, coming home, it feels a bit dangerous in some places. There are some very narrow places where there's barely enough room for uh, cars to drive. And so kids and families and, and maybe people who are nervous, anybody who wants to bike or walk or go on a scooter should be able to do so. Have you felt like we in the media in general have been almost like maintaining a suspension of disbelief about the implications of climate change? We have not got our heads around the fact that, as your front page says, we have to change to protect the planet. We have given a lot of space to the businesses. I mean, the catalyst for this for me was the businesses who keep saying bike lanes are bad for business. And I understand that they are concerned. I understand that change is really hard. And we've seen in cities around the world, like in New York, when they pedestrianised Times Square, the theatres said this will be the death of us. In fact, it's been fantastic for them and has created this huge pedestrianised area in the centre of Manhattan there. So I get that change is hard, um, but I wanted to be able to support that by using the research. So we, of course, went and spoke to businesses in Newtown who were concerned about that. But we also spoke to the researchers who showed us the hard statistics and data on the fact that uh, bike lanes actually increase the number of people going past businesses, the number of people stopping. It's actually a net positive for business. So I think the role that we as the media can play is injecting some of those facts and statistics into the debate. So if, if we look at how stuff has changed its reporting on climate change, we have said that we accept that climate change is a given and we give very little to no space to climate change deniers. And so we frame our reporting in that way. And I'm applying a similar lens now to our coverage of transport in the Wellington region. Of course, we will continue to be balanced and fair and be a forum for all sorts of voices. But we are saying climate change is a given. Transport is the biggest sort of source of our emissions. Therefore, we need to act and we will uh, frame our coverage around that. I think that first step has been taken by most media. Climate change is a given. We accept that it's a scientific fact. But then why is there such a cavernous gulf between accepting that fact and the actual coverage of climate action, which is often framed in the most negative possible terms? Yeah, I think it's about the fact that the people who oppose these things, whether it is denser housing or whether it is multimodal transport systems, you know, they're often often the same people, uh, but it's a relatively small but noisy minority of people. Their voices, I think, have been disproportionately reflected in the media coverage. It's much harder to go out there and find people who are happy because they're not talking about it so much or they're not um, not so public or so vociferous in their response. But so that's the thing that we are doing and the change that we've made in the Wellington newsroom here is that we are actively going out and trying to find the middle 
And I actually don't agree with your point about people want to read about conflict. I think people actually want to read about positive change too and want to see a really constructive public discussion about ways to do better on public transport. It doesn't all have to be um, people with crossed arms opposing any kind of change. How has the response been to your kind of positive and constructive angle on this? Of course, there are also, I've had some letters to the editor from people talking about how they are um, too old or infirm or whatever to ride a bike or a scooter or walk everywhere or complaining about the bus services. Um, And that's a completely valid point of view. But the point I've been trying to make and, and the point I made in the note introducing this series was that we're not saying everybody needs to ride a bike or jump on an electric scooter or something like that. We are saying that our cities should be built in such a way that everybody who wants to ride a bike or walk on a um, footpath that's not littered with scooters should be able to do so. There will always be a need for cars. I drive a car on occasion. Um, you know, where we're talking about facilitating choice so that people can make the choice about which mode of transport they want to take on a particular day. Now, no matter how you do this, there will be those people that don't want to do this stuff, no matter what the science says. And those perspectives, as you say, are valid, but what should the media do about that? Is it your job to follow public opinion or to lead it? It's neither. Um, I think it's our job to be a kind of town hall for the public, um, to facilitate that kind of discussion. It's not for us to lead the debate, really, but to present all of these facts and let people make up their own minds. While you say that you are a town hall, you obviously feel that a portion of the town hall is more connected to the science. So you have taken a view about which side of that town hall is actually more grounded in reality? Yes, I think we have, because the climate change science is really clear. I mean, I've looked at transport because we're an urban capital region. Um, Agriculture is not a big concern in the Wellington region, but transport is. So I think that our, our coverage can be led by the science there Um, and again by these international examples and it's really kind of striking to hear like even in the Netherlands in the 1970s people were opposed to bike lanes Um, and now look at it so I think it is that old idea that change can be hard it's easier if you're an elected politician just to hunker down and to stick with the status quo Um, but through this series we're saying you know the status quo is not good enough the status quo got us to this and we need to think about how we change, not whether we change. That's Stuff Wellington editor Anna Fifield talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell about the Dominion Post campaign calling for a mode shift to cut transport emissions in the capital. Last week was a big one for a family synonymous with journalism in Taranaki and nationwide. Former newspaper editor Jim Tucker, who started out in journalism back in 1965, went on to become a leading journalism educator. A recent profile in the spin-off, dubbing him the godfather of New Zealand journalism, estimated that he's helped train as many as 1,500 journalists down the years. He was also a frequent contributor and commentator down the years on this programme as well since 2001, 
and even in semi-retirement in New Plymouth, he is still chasing stories and writing columns for local publications. And for all his services to journalism, Jim Tucker was made an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit at an investiture ceremony in Auckland last week, and several of his extended family were there for the honour. But not there on the day, though, was his brother Rob Tucker, also a long-serving and respected journalist, though he did make the news on RNZ's checkpoint the following day. The Brotherhood of New Zealand Photojournalists has answered the call of a terminally ill colleague to help out the cash-strapped Taranaki hospice. Rob Tucker, a former illustrations editor at the New Zealand Herald, is putting together an auction of 100-plus iconic images to raise funds for the organisation he calls the Angels in the Night. Our Taranaki Whanganui reporter Robin Martin has more. And in Robin Martin's report, Rob Tucker said the Brotherhood submitted a stunning array of photos to raise much-needed money for the hospice that's provided relief to Rob himself in recent times. Now, several of the images you'll know already, like Michael Tuppety's famous New Zealand Herald image of Dame Fina Cooper walking hand-in-hand with a mokopuna during the Māori land hikoi in the 1970s, or Barry Durant's image of the first lifeboat coming ashore after the sinking of the Wahine in 1968. That picture for the Dominion also ran on front pages of newspapers all around the world. And another one in the auction, a Jeff Dale New Zealand Herald photo of Muhammad Ali sparring with a couple of young kids in Auckland, was recognised by one of those kids last week, giving Robin Martin a nice follow-up on Morning Report this week. Now rugby league legend Dean Bell has come forward and revealed the likely lads duking it out with Ali with a former Kiwi star and his cousin Wayne Bell. We thought, oh, being inquisitive teenagers, we'll just go over and be nosy and go and have a look who what's going on, who it is, what, what's all the fuss about. And obviously we crossed the road and we got over there and we've seen it was the man himself. Wow. Rob Tucker told the listener last month, these prints are one-offs, they'll never be reprinted again, ever. And that's a far cry from publishers, entrepreneurs and auction houses these days trying to make a fast buck by hawking digitised copies of images to speculative investors. And when he sat down with Robin Martin, Rob Tucker talked about news photos as not just journalism, but as a form of art with an uncertain future. I came up with this idea um, with all my mates who are photojournalists working on newspapers, why don't we get a collection of uh, historic photos that help mould the history of New Zealand? What's happened is that the, the boys have come out of the woodwork now and we've got over 90 beautiful, beautiful photographs of historic New Zealand. And they're you know, contacting them and, and they have never had this opportunity to actually come out into the limelight and say, wow, I took that picture. I want the photographers to get credit as well. So that if you heard of the name Ross Land or if you heard of the name Barry Durant, you know that those guys were the ones that helped, you know, form this, you know, historic collection. What's the response been when you've gone to the the Brotherhood, as you call them? They they, they almost feel honoured that someone's thought of them. And I mean, Mike Tuberty did the um, Fina Cooper Hickoy picture. I think everybody remembers it as this back-on shot of this woman and a little girl and they're walking down a dirt road and it was taken in Cape Reinga by Mike Tuberty. Well, people remember the photo, but they won't remember Mike Tuberty. Now, Mike's 88. He was in hospital when I rang him about a month ago. I said, hey, Mike, that picture you took of Fina Cooper? He said, oh, yeah, I remember that. I said, well, it's famous. He said, no, it's not. I said, well, it's going to be. (laughs) 
and he he didn't realise that, that 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 photo had a huge impact, you know, on on this is part of the, the that was one of the first major hecoys to Parliament about land rights, and he didn't even have a copy of the photo, and we had to search and search until we could find a copy of this photograph. I mean, one of the shots that just absolutely even us photographers want to buy it is taken by a guy called Wayne Harmon, who's a former picture editor on the New Zealand Herald. Like I was, I came in after him. And he did the picture of King Karaoke being buried uh, on the top of Mount Taupri near Huntley. And the picture was taken in the rain and there's about 10 of them trying to carry this coffin on a very, very steep, scrubby uh, mountain top to get him to the top of the mountain. Yeah, and it's just such a powerful photo that people have forgotten about. And even Wayne, the photographer had to dig deep into his collect, you know, into his wardrobe or wherever, his desk at home, to find a copy of it. There's an amazing photo that Barry won a lot of awards for of um, the breakthrough of the tunnel at Manapuri, about 8Ks underground, where they the, all the dignitaries were gathered with hard hats on deep down in the mountain, inside the mountain. They are going to put a blast through to connect the two tunnels for the outpouring out race. And uh, they put too much dynamite in the, in the blast. Barry shot as of all the dignitaries with their hard hats about two feet above their heads, <laughs> all being blown off their feet. It's just an amazing picture. Um, what does it mean to you to do this project at this stage in your life? Well, there's two things. One, it stops me looking around my garden to see where my funeral pot will be. And secondly, it's just lovely to be able to, to bring the brotherhood, the photographers, instead of fading away, getting together and a lot of them are coming down and they're going to stay at the at the Plymouth Hotel where the auction's going to be and they're going to have a big party. And it's also, hopefully, going to raise some good funds for the hospice. You know, I, uh, photography is an amazing career, I've had had probably one of the best careers. I've never worked a day of my life, so to speak. Um, I've toured the world. I mean, one of my hardest assignments was doing going to 17 countries in um, three weeks to photograph luxury hotels. And that was a pretty hard assignment, but they're the sort of assignments I've had. So I've had a ball of my life, and I think at 74, I've had a really good innings. What's been thrown at me now is a challenge, but um, I look back and think, well, wow, I've had a really good innings. And, um, yeah, I don't I don't think anybody could better it. And what do you think of the state of photography in 2022? I think photography is a lot easier because of the cameras that are being used today and you can it's easier to capture what you see now. In the old days, you had to use filters and all sorts of tricks to, to get that perfect sunset. Now you can, on a digital camera, take 300 images, look at them and wipe them and start again, whereas we used to use film and it was expensive and clumsy with processing and everything else. Stay as an amateur until you know that you've got clients, they're going to pay you money so that you can enjoy life and be a real photographer and be able to afford to do what you're doing. There was a a woman uh, came to me one day and she said, Look at these photos, Rob. I've been to Nepal, and they're amazing pictures of the culture 
in Nepal. And I looked at them, the beautiful black and white prints, and I said, yeah, that's great. I said, but what about the culture in your backyard of Inglewood? Well, there's no culture there. I said, well, until you can see the culture in your own backyard, you made it simple for yourself to go to Nepal where you step off a plane and it's a different world. But to be a true photojournalist or a true photographer, you've got to see what's around you first in your own lo- locality and you'll find millions of things to photograph. That's Rob Tucker, former illustrations editor for the New Zealand Herald and the brains behind the photojournalism New Zealand charity auction, which will be held in New Plymouth on September the 24th. You can check out the images for sale on the Facebook page of the Photojournalism New Zealand Charity Auction. And for those who would like a memento of all the images, Rob Tucker says that they're working on a book collecting all those images submitted by the Brotherhood. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media in Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday on The Lately Show with Karen Hay. And then back with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.